All right, uh, my apologies for coming in late, ironically, to my own school. Uh, but I was, this, we began this morning in Paramus, New Jersey, and uh, dropped my wife off at the house, uh, put on another vest, and, and spun over here as quickly as I could. Um, I often get, if you get to a church and they say, well, we'd like to know, you're speaking in a week or two, uh, we'd like to know what your topic is, we'd like to put it in the bulletin. Um, it doesn't usually work with me. I change my mind more often than not. I usually don't hear God correctly, and I have to repent and get right and then preach what I'm supposed to preach. And sometimes the sermon changes between the early service and the later service and such. And so when Dr. Lingle said, um, hey, I need to know your topic, I, yeah, I, he said, well, I've probably given him four or five of them. Um, but because this is dealing with insider movement, and because uh, we are dealing with something that is so profoundly important, um, I have, I've tried to winnow my topic down. It is, to me, a great honor to be here. Uh, to work with Josh Lingle is, is huge. To see some of my friends here, like Carl Gordon and uh, Dr. Pruitt, uh, who is uh, unfortunately serving with my brother. Uh, but what I'm going to do in the time that we have together is I want to come at the insider movement from a different perspective and from a different angle. Um, we are often given the moniker that we are mean-spirited, hard-hearted, lockstep, fundamentalist, uh, narrow-thinking people. If you're against the insider movement or you're against uh, different methods, we are not creative. Uh, we are scared of, of uh, new movements and we're terrified of anything that doesn't look like our parentage. Uh, I, I, I believe that's not only um, unfair, I believe it's unjust. Uh, I want to approach the issue of the insider movement from, uh, from a different perspective. I want to assume good motives for them. And I want to assume uh, that they are well-intentioned. And I do so because uh, I think it's fair to do so. I think it's fair to say. I don't think that they're just pragmatists who are uh, trying to find uh, an easier way to get numbers on a board. I don't, I don't believe that. And you might find it surprising. Anybody who knows anything about me uh, at all knows I don't play well with others. So it's a, it's a remarkable change for me to make such a statement. That said, uh, I don't have my paper typed out. I have it written out. And since I don't want to give you my handwriting, um, I've written on the board behind me my email address. If you want it, you can have it. Um, I'll, send you, I'll send it to you. Uh, then below that is um, my Twitter account, mainly because, bro, I was Twittering while you were speaking, the things you were saying about building the bridges with, with pagan wood. I love that. So um, I'm obsessed with Twitter. Uh, I don't like Facebook uh, because I think it's been taken over by stay-at-home moms. Uh, I don't want to take quizzes. I don't want to read somebody's 80-page note. I like something short and brief. And that's why I also promise you I will be done before one hour. And we will have time for questions. The third thing that I have written up there is ecanner at truit.edu. Uh, if you come across my presentation and you think I'm mean-spirited, mean wait till you hear my brother. Uh, Emir makes me look like a hugologist. Uh, he, he is, uh, well, you don't want to miss tomorrow. All right, the title, Medieval Mormonism. What I endeavor to do in the time that we have together, is to give you what I believe to be the secret of Islam, the easiest way to explain Islam, even to those who are confused by the insider movement. 
It is, in fact, a method that you could simply write down as a chart on the piece of paper that you have in your folder. Um, it will be about 36 different things that I will be showing you, but I hope that it will be understandable and it will be simple. I teach and thus am obsessed with global apologetics. And I approach global apologetics from a simple perspective which will help you understand what I believe about the insider movement. I believe every world religion needs to be studied. The students that take the Master of Arts in Global Apologetics here, for instance, uh, they study Far Eastern religions, Middle Eastern religions, Near Eastern religions, and then finally Western and New religions. I think that somewhere in the 19th century we split, and perhaps in the early part of the 20th century. Evangelical Bible-believing Christianity decided that we were going to study, if we studied anything at all, we would study the major religions, but we would, we would focus on cults. Cults that either replace Christianity or correct Christianity. And so if you talk about apologetics or anything like what we're doing here in missiological apologetics and paradigms, you would, you would in our training, those of us who are my age, I'm, I'm 43, but in our age and younger, we studied Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, maybe a Christian scientist. They threw a Campbellite every now and again at us, and that was about it. I want my students to read the Rig Veda. I want them at least sections of it. I want them to read uh, the Song of God, the Bhagavad Gita. Because I believe it's important to understand the mindset of the person with whom you're sharing the gospel. It's important when it comes to the insider movement. I believe that it's important because we assume that they understand our vocabulary with our dictionary, and they don't. How many evangelists have gone to India? And this is just one example. They've gone to India and they've given it the gospel. They, they, they share the gospel of Christ. You see the videos. There's you know, 250,000 there. They ask, will you accept Jesus as Lord? And thousands of hands shoot up. They come back from India and they say, we saw 75,000 saved. 75,000 accepted Jesus as Lord. If, in fact, that many people accepted Jesus as Lord over and over for the number of evangelists who went, I think we've made an incredible dent into India. But that, in fact, is not the case. Why? Because an Indian has no problem, a Hindu has no problem accepting Jesus as Lord alongside of the 330 million other lords. And whether they're followers of Shiva or Ganesh, the elephant-headed god, or they're Brahminites, you say you, Jesus is Lord, they'll go, sure, I'll bring him alongside of. A Hindu hears it differently than, say, a Buddhist does. Buddha who rejected any notion of a god, ironically becomes Lord Buddha, a god himself, by his followers. And so whether they're Mahayana or Theravada Buddhists, they hear it differently. I, I divide them up for my students this way because it's understanding the, the category that I approach Islam uh, coming from in Islamic background maybe will help unpack this a little easier. In my estimation, and this is just in my opinion, okay, this is not gospel, I believe that Hinduism is in fact the oldest religion. I believe that Hinduism goes back to Genesis 11. I think it is the Tower of Babel. Uh, like I said, with a myriad of gods and, and a, a pantheon of gods and henotheism, it, I mean, there's so much, I think, that it would fit into the Tower of Babel. Out of Hinduism come the rest of the Near Eastern religions. Buddhism, the rejection of Hinduism. Sikh and Yain. Sikhism, of course, uh, which is one of the new ones, fascinating because it was started by a musician who wanted to bring everybody together. And so the Sikhs... Uh, you know, they try to meld everybody together. Yainism is the most strict. People literally starve themselves to death in Yain temples, the, the holy men who walk naked uh, in hopes of earning salvation. It is the strictest diet and such. All of these are philosophical religions. Near Eastern religions are philosophically based. 
They're esoteric. Middle Eastern religions are theologically based. They are different than philosophical religions. Philosophical religions, the Near Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Yain, and Sikh, they are different than the Middle Eastern religions, which I would include in there modern Judaism, Zoroastrianism, Islam, and Baha'i. And by the way, each one of these categories has a syncretist group. Syncretism is not unique to Christianity. Karl Rahner and the anonymous Christianity idea is not, is not unique with us. Baha'i, you know, Bahuala, the followers of the Bab, the Bab who said, I'm the gate, and then Bahuala's coming, and Bahuala's announced not just about 100 years ago in Haifa, Israel. He was the guy who said, all the prophets are great, but I'm the final prophet. He tried to unite all religions, just like you have over with the Sikhs who tried to unite Hinduism and Islam. Well, the Middle Eastern religions, however, are theologically based in that they believe in right and wrong. They have sacred texts that must be adhered to. They are, by and large, monotheistic. It's, uh, for instance, obviously, mo- uh, modern Judaism, the, the forms of modern Judaism, reform, uh, conservative, orthodox, Hasidim, they are monotheistic for, for the most part, although there are some that are atheists. Islam, of course. Zoroastrianism has a god of two faces. And, of course, Baha'i. Those are theological. They believe in right and wrong. They have sacred texts. They are what we would call the most religious. So if Near Eastern religions are philosophically based, Middle Eastern religions are theologically based, what then can we say about the Far Eastern religions? They're sociologically based. Not a one, not a one of the Far Eastern religions ever set out to be a religion. Lao Tzu with Taoism, Confucius with the Analects, Shintoism, the national religion of Japan. All of these systems were sociologically. For instance, Confucius only mentions heaven once in the Analects. And for him, all of salvation is based on honor in the five relationships. Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching, Taoism, it's based on yin and yang. It's based on good and bad, darkness and evil, karma. It's sort of an idea of the opposites attracting and offsetting. And then you have all of these that have a form of that, like Shintoism, Falun Gong, which is from 1992, um, Jucha, which is the, na- the developing religion in North Korea. And as you saw in the news, it's, it's about to receive its third god. In North Korea, they pray to the pictures of Kim Jong-il and Kim Il-sung. And Jucha, the idea of self-reliance, is turning into a religion right in front of our eyes, from a speech from 54 uh, until now when they're, when they're seeing this as their national religion. It's very sociologically based. It's our own deities, and this deity, deity or deities, and this deity is our God, and we have our creation story, and you have Khao Dai of Vietnam. Now, I tell you all this because the religions that we normatively study are Western and new. They're all basically new movements. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Scientology, Christian Science, all of them. And like I said, they fit into categories of either those that believe they're replacing Christianity, like the science fiction movements, and that's where I put humanism, and those that believe they're correcting Christianity, like Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, Mormonism, etc. These other movements, I offset them from Christianity. Because my fundamental thesis with my students, my fundamental thesis that I give to you is Christianity is not a religion. I do not believe in any context that you can call Christianity a religion. If religion is a set of rites and rituals and principles by which men either get God to love them more or get God to stop hating them, then the set of rules, rites, and rituals by which they follow, Jesus Christ completely inverted that entire process. The entire process. 
and I list for students every now and again those degrees of separation and the, the most fundamental difference. Raised as a Sunni Muslim, now a believer in Jesus Christ. The most fundamental difference that I lay before you, Josh was just literally just showing me while we were sitting there in between the sessions. While every other religion has a God or gods that is either non-existent, meaning not needed, uninterested, or distant. Only Christianity presents the relationship between man and God in terms of father. No other system. None, none, none. No other system in the world. Khao Dai uses a term. Khao Dai started in 1926 in Vietnam. Khao Dai is a system that uses the term divine parent, but it doesn't mean father the way we mean father. Intimacy, the creator of the universe, the, the one who created the galaxies, who saved my sorry, black and sin, sick and soul, is now my father. I have entered a relationship in my salvation with him where he is my Lord and he is also my parent. He has taken me on as his child and that means we're all family. And if we're family, to use my wife's term, who is very Southern, we are kin. And if we are kinfolk, that means that we are related by a divine blood, a divine kinship. Now that is, a, that is a community and a family that you cannot find in any other system. That is a distinction that is so profound that those of us raised in Christianity, uh, I would ask you to, to, I would beg you to please pay attention. Because to those of us who didn't understand the father concept, that type of intimacy is breathtaking. We pray, we face Mecca five times a day. And all we do is repeat the first chapter of the Quran. Six verses, over and over and over. Why? Because who are you, who are you, who are you to ever bring a request to Allah? Allah will do what Allah will do. It is something that my, that my brother will speak to tomorrow. But you, you fall down, your arm breaks, you fall down, you bust your head. What are you supposed to say? We all know. Inshallah. Inshallah. Over and over. Inshallah. Will. Inshallah's will. And then I get saved. I get saved and I discover that I come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy in a time of need. I get saved and the, and the scripture says he inclines his ear to hear the prayers of his saints. I get saved and the scripture says that be anxious for nothing, but by all things, by prayer and supplication, make your request known unto God. God hears me. Why? Because he's my father. That is a profundity. That is an Abba relationship. There is no such thing in any other religion, especially not in Islam. In Islam, Allah is transcendent. He is not imminent. The most important chapter in the Quran, everyone in this room knows it. The most important chapter in the Quran, Surah 112. Allah does not beget, nor is he begotten. Over and over. I mean, Surah 19, Surah Miriam, it has Jesus speaking from the cradle. I am man, not God. They make the distinction. I do not believe Christianity is a religion. But how do you describe and how do you explain for those well-intentioned, well-meaning, for the most part, godly, committed, much more committed than those of us who are stateside, people who are willing to go into other contexts and share the gospel, well, I want to share with you one little secret that separates Christianity from any other religion and one that is the secret that I believe is the easiest way to describe Islam, even to insiders. As the insider movement continues to find traction in the missiological world, among both practicing missionaries in the field and the theorists, I already heard J. Dudley Woodbury cited, and the theorists who train and teach in evangelical training centers, one of the central assumptions has to be reconsidered, and that's 
That's my purpose here this evening. I agree that if Islam was just a mere shadow, if Islam was just a mere shadow of Christianity, a reasonable misunderstanding of Christianity, then the insider movement is correct, profoundly important, and should be followed. I am not. I am not someone who abhors change for the sake of change. I love change for the sake of change. The difference between churches that say we're never going to do that again or we're never going to try it because we've never done it any other way and creative movements are profound to me. The difference between tradition and traditionalism, to quote C. Richard Wells. Tradition, well, tradition is the, it's the living faith of dead men, but traditionalism is the dead faith of living men that says we're not going to try it because we've never done it that way. I'm not that person. I have nothing against new movements. I have nothing against new attempts. I have nothing against being creative. What I have a problem with is when we make changes without fundamentally understanding the essence and the core. And that's where I want to hit this. This is essence and core. If Islam was a mere shadow of Christianity, a reasonable misunderstanding of faith, then the use of insider language and the use of insider method should be warranted and embraced. However, if the nature of Islam were corrupted at the core, if the central understandings of Islam as it applies to our Lord are corrupted at the core based on cultic movements that long since abandoned of Christian truth, then the insider movement would be a mirror that shows a cracked view based on its original cracked view that reflected a cracked view. In other words, instead of copying authentic Christianity, they copied a cult of Christianity such as Arianism or Coptic, such as the Gospel of Barnabas. And if that's the case, then they are not mirroring Christianity, they are mirroring a false picture. So then, what is this great secret um, that I want to bring to you about Islam? If, in fact, Islam was not a mirror of authentic Christianity that was just corrupted slightly, cracked a little bit, but if, in fact, it was reflecting a cult so that it wasn't even reflecting genuine or authentic uh, Christianity, then it would be corrupted not only from the core, but its own reflections would be corrupted as well. And so why is it that it sounds so similar? Why is it that the insider movement seems so winsome? Why is it that, that this, this, this seems to grab so many people's attention? They use the same names, they use the same stories. As you can see by the title, what my central premise is, I believe the best way to describe Islam to anyone is that Islam is nothing other than medieval Mormonism. As a matter of fact, there are so many similarities between Mormonism and Islam that I'm gonna give you the most comprehensive I've ever given out publicly, but there are many more to go. I'm gonna give you 36 parallels to these two systems, 36 parallels to the two leaders, 36 parallels between Mormonism and Islam that may show you that if, like me, you believe that the demonic realm exists, it's gotta be the same demon using a carbon copy. Now, this is not new with me. This is neither a a new concept, it's simply one that we haven't studied much. It actually, to me, started with a Roman Catholic priest who made this as a presentation. However, writing in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism in 1992, Arnold Green said this, the initial comparison between Mormonism and Islam was perhaps made in 1834, not more than, what, four years before Mormonism really took a launch. 
1834, when the quote-unquote anti-Mormon pastor, E.D. Howe, E-D-H-O-W-E, he wrote a tremendous tract on this topic. He suggested that Joseph Smith matched Muhammad's, quote, ignorance and stupidity. And he, he likened Islam and Muhammad to Mormonism because they had long presumed a belief in the fraudulence of Christianity. Now, Green later noted that LDS leaders have, quote, cast Islam in a positive historical role since, quote, Muhammad and other non-biblical religious leaders and philosophers, listen to this, quote, received a portion of God's light. Moral truths were given to them by God to enlighten whole nations. And he added that Islam, quote, was divinely instigated to scourge apostate Christianity and to curb idolatry. So what, this was Joseph Smith saying this, or maybe uh, Brigham Young. No, this was from 1978. This is from the statement from February 15th, 1978, regarding God's love for humanity by the president of the Latter-day Saints in our lifetime. Now, this comparison will cover eight different genres, eight different areas of Christian thinking, if we will. Let's begin with the section on Revelation. Number one, in both Mormonism and in Islam, their prophet received the divine message from an angel. The angel Jibreel in Islam, that Muhammad assumed was the Holy Spirit. And in Mormonism, Moroni, the angel Moroni. It's so interesting how the parallel works. No other system has a, rep has a reception of the message from a divine angel who speaks from a distance because God would not come close to man except for in Islam and in Mormonism. Number two, both of them received their ecstatic vision when they were alone in a garden. Joseph Smith was in an actual garden. Muhammad was in a cave outside of a garden, right, right near the garden. And so both of them were alone when they got the vision. Three, both Joseph Smith and Muhammad were the only ones to see this vision at all. No one ever saw or heard this vision or this angel except for their leaders. They, they would talk about those that may have seen it, but they were long since dead. Four, both Joseph Smith and Muhammad believed they received the message on tablets. Uh, I want to I show you something fascinating, and I will give you the exact citation because... Uh, uh, in Mormonism, it, it, it was uh, important. The idea that the tablets came from uh, divine sight, the idea of it being pure, heavenly gold, both in Mormonism and in Islam. Now, both Joseph Smith and Muhammad came from poor backgrounds. Both Joseph Smith and Muhammad believed the miracle of their religion is that one who was so uneducated could come out with such a brilliant thesis and religion. Muhammad is illiterate. Muslims believe the miracle of the Quran is that the illiterate man could come out with the Quran and, and, and to give it to the amanuenses. Joseph Smith, what did he brag about? I only came to grade three, right? Now let's look at their second section, purpose. The purpose of their religion. And I will continue the numbering if it's okay. Number seven. Both Joseph Smith and Muhammad believed that there was no true religion on the earth when they received their vision. I want you to chew on that. They did not believe themselves to be an extension of Christianity. They believed they were replacing it. 
Both Joseph Smith and Muhammad believed that Judaism had the truth and lost it, and that Christianity had the truth and corrupted it. Muslims, of course, we don't, Muslims don't like Paul. They think Paul corrupted the message of Jesus with this message of grace that Paul was trying to import. But both Mormons and Muslims believe that Christians are not true. Jews are not true. They are false. That no true religion existed on the earth and now replaced with their movement. They believe that eight, all other faiths were corrupt. As a matter of fact, both of them consign non-Mormons slash non-Muslims to hell, to damnation. In Islam, you have seven levels to hell, right? What's the lowest level for? Yeah, guys like me, Murtad. Uh, they call us the hypocrites, the, the great con converts. What's level six and five? Jews and Muslims who will not accept Allah. Uh, Jews, and, Jews and Christians, thank you, my friend. Jews and Christians who do not accept Allah. As a matter of fact, when uh, the, the teachings in the Sunni world from the Hadith, what happens when Jesus returns? When Isa returns, he does three things. Number one, he breaks all the crosses. Number two, he kills all the swine. And number three, he kills all the Christians and Jews who do not accept Allah. Jesus does this. Isa does this. And so they do not believe that Christians and Jews are like brethren or distant cousins. They believe that they are false movements. Both of them believe all other faiths are corrupt. Number nine, it was their job to correct Christianity. That's the message of both Mormonism and Islam. Not, 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 not just supplement, but to correct it, to replace it. Yeah? Number 10, both of them believe that their sacred text operates by two fundamental premises that you have to know. And this is all part of number 10. Number one, abrogation. And number two, retraction. Their sacred text replaces the Bible by abrogation and retraction. What does that mean? Well, let's start with abrogation. You know this. They believe that they are there to correct the Bible, that their version corrects the Bible. And thus, when they point out errors in the Scripture, they often correct errors in the Scripture because it doesn't agree with the Quran. For instance, a Muslim saying, well, we, you, know, you know that Mary gave birth under a palm tree, but you have them in a manger. Well, that's only because, again, Surah Miriam says she was giving birth holding onto a palm tree screaming. That's simply because of abrogation, because their job was to correct it. It's the great apologetic. It's what I call you know, circular reasoning, the great apologetic, just to go, you know what? I'm so glad you're here. Get off your bicycle. Come on in. I, I'm so glad. You wouldn't believe what happened to me last night. An angel appeared to me. I don't remember what his name is, but it sounded like moron. And he appeared to me and he said that it's my job to correct the Book of Mormon. Well, you can't do this. Why? Well, the Book of Mormon's perfect. No, the Bible is perfect. No, the Book of Mormon corrects the mistakes in the Bible. Well, I'm here to correct the mistakes in the Book of Mormon. Because abrogation says if it's newer, it corrects the older. What's retraction? Both Mormonism and Islam have internal retractions in their sacred text. Joseph Smith in the correction of polygamy, they say, okay, this was the revelation then, but we correct it now. We take it for the polygamy is taken out. And of course, what do we have in Islam? Surah 53, man. The satanic verses. Right? Allah's three. The, the idea that, okay, in the middle of the chapter, he talks about the three gods and then says, oh, no, 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 I was just kidding. That's retraction. That's an internal retraction. Both of them have internal retraction. All right. 
Any questions so far on these first two? They're on revelation and on purpose. All right, then let's move to the third section. Let's look at method. Both Mormonism and Islam accept large portions of the Pentateuch. In Mormonism, Pearl of a Great Price, Doctrines and Covenants, and of course, Book of Mormon. Plus they say, well, we'll take the Bible, but we translate it ourselves and we have to edit it ourselves and we have to comment on it ourselves. And then, of course, in Islam, they take large portions. That's why it confuses so many people because they use so much of our book and they use so many of our people, but this is important. They change, this is number 12, they both change the characters. And by changing the characters, it is profoundly important. What they do is, they take stories that they don't like, delete the ones that they prefer not to have, and change the nature of the ones that they like to tell their story. I'll give you one from Islam, but it's one that most of you already know. Eid al-Fatir, Eid the celebration of Ibrahim, on the top of the mountain, laying his son on the altar, plunges his knife down and at the last minute, saves the life of Ishmael. So I get saved. And I'm reading through Genesis. Because what does every young Christian do? And I get to Genesis 21, 22. 20, I'm going, wait, 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 wait. If you do the math, that means 2,200 years after Moses wrote it down and 2,700 years after it took place, Muhammad flipped the script. He changed the story. And of course, Mormons got Jesus running all over America. Just take the characters and make them do what you want them to do. Number 13. They have new versions and new stories of old characters. For instance, one of the biggest mistakes I ever made in the pulpit, and trust me, honey, I have made millions of mistakes in the pulpit, but one sermon, I don't know if in the middle of the sermon my mind wandered, and if I'm the only person that's ever happened to, I apologize, but... I talked about Satan refusing to bow to Adam. Yeah. That's only in Islam. That's only in Islam. And to see the two things that terrified me from that moment was number one, nobody corrected me. Everybody in the church, all the sweet, that's right, I read that. That was in the Herschel Hobbes Bible study. I saw that. And secondly, and secondly, when somebody did point it out to me, they did it very quietly, and it, it oh, I, so stupid, so stupid. This is a method in both. We continue. Number 14. Both of them have an affinity for, a love for Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. Ironically, Mary too, but we'll come back to that. Number 15. This is uh, very hard for me, but this is also very right on point with what we're doing here. Number 15, both Mormonism and Islam replace Israel. The, ad, the birth, the rebirth of replacement theology that we are seeing in modern evangelicalism is not by accident. Replacement theology, the church replaces the Israel if I'm raised to hate Israel, now I stand with Israel. And it puts me in a minority, and I'm actually arguing with other believers who will say, oh, come on, Israel's, you know, come on, they're very stiff-necked. Yeah, but they're still God's chosen people. He still gives them a second chance. My eschatology holds to that. And, and by the way, when was the last time you ever took a vacation in Nineveh? 
Yeah, God doesn't bless the people that abandon Israel. But all of a sudden, our evangelicalism makes us terrified to even stand with them and talk about that. And that's tied to the insider movement, by the way. It's not Palestine, it's Israel. And Jerusalem is God's holy and indivisible city. Let's move on to their ethics, section number four. Number 16, both Mormonism and Islam hold to theocratic nationalism. They have to. Both of them hold to a theocratic, that is, that they are ruled by their religion. Sharia law, and of course, theocracy in, this, in Mormonism. Number 17, in both of their systems, unbelievers are second-class citizens. In theory, in Mormonism, it still holds, and it's still in their writings. And in Islam, you pay a jisyat when you live in their countries. Number 18, both of them have codes of modesty. Codes of modesty that are enforced. Number 19, neither of them allow for alcohol. Now, there's many others I can insert there. I just simply put alcohol as a shortened version of showing you that they have so many parallel codes. Number 20, both of them embrace polygamy. It is no irony. It is no accident. Both of them embrace polygamy, only for the male, by the way. That moves us on to 21. In both Mormonism and in Islam, women on earth are controlled. I don't know where the number came from. It may have come from James Dobson, but I heard that 25,000 evangelical Christian girls marry Muslim men every year in America. Maybe true, maybe false, I don't know. It may, be, it may be far lower, but I run into it all the time, don't you? Where a good Christian girl says, oh, but he's so religious. Show them the verse, Surah 434. And I quote, if a man finds disloyalty from his woman, first he is to admonish her, secondly refuse to share the bed with her, thirdly beat her. And you look at the translations, even Yusuf Ali, where it says, oh, tap her lightly. Yeah, well, okay. Yeah, with the rod, of course. Tap her lightly. If I ever tapped my wife lightly, she would kill me. Twenty, Yeah, she's southern, man. Southern belle can kill you. 22. And women for eternity? In both Mormonism and in Islam, sexual slaves. What does the woman's greatest hope in, in Mormonism? In eternity. To be what? Celestial bride. To be pregnant for eternity. Enjoy that. And here's the question, what does the man get when he dies as a shaheed? Yeah, huris. The term huris. 72 perpetual virgins waiting on couches with pomegranates to serve them sexually. And they're perpetual virgins. They go back to being the virgins after you deflower them. And so every now and again when somebody says, oh, you know, this is, this is horrible, but that's just, that's just stolen. That's, you know, it's, Islam's been hijacked. Here's my question. What does the woman shaheed get? Anyone? Yeah, it's only, it's only, it's only a doctrine that comes from uh, Osama bin Muhammad bin Laden, from his system, from the Wahhabi. But if you tell a woman waiting for you in heaven, if you die, if you, you know, get on a bus and die, that waiting for you in paradise is uh, 72 perpetually virginal men, uh, that, that's not heaven to a woman. That's annoying to a woman. In the, the case is absolutely certain, though. In both cases, women are sexual slaves for eternity. They are controlled here on earth. Let's move on to the fifth section, secret ceremonies. 
Both of them have holy sites that are only for believers. Mecca and, of course, the tabernacle. They don't let you in. They only let you in the outer court. They only let you in to see a little bit, but you're not allowed in. 24. Both of them have absolute strict rules on ritual cleansing. In Islam, what is it? The wudu. And the Mormons have their holy underwear along with the rituals, the, the, the sacred underwear that they have to wear. I mean, it's down, so, it's so prescribed. The hardest thing for me as a new believer was to, to find out that there was no such prescription um, for me. Now I continue, I was 24, so let's move on to 25. Let's look at their theology. Their theology. Number 25. Both of them reject and fight Israel. It's not just replacement theology. What do the Mormons see themselves as? The lost tribe of Israel. What do the Muslims see themselves as? The tribe of Ishmael. In both cases, Israel must be pushed out. Israel has no place in God's plan. And before you think that I'm exaggerating, hang on. 26. Both of them have Jesus himself explicitly saying he's a prophet, not God. Both in Mormonism and in Islam. And not even the greatest prophet. 27, both of them have Jesus speaking of the final prophet, meaning their prophet. In Mormonism, Jesus prophesies the coming of Joseph Smith. And in Surah 61 of the Quran, what does it say? Jesus, Jesus' own words, I must go so that a comforter, Ahmed, the shortened version of Muhammad, must come. 28, both of them have salvation as complete and total works. Complete and total works. 29. Both Mormonism and Islam explicitly deny the Trinity. This is where I really struggle when we come up to our brethren who are insiders. I love them. God bless them for all their attempts to reach my people. I can't get into the countries they can. God bless them for that. But when you say Allah and you're talking about the God of the Bible, you're just driving me insane. They deny the Father heart of God, the divinity of the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit. Exactly what part of God do they get right? There's not one part, not by his attributes, not by his nature, not by his name, not by his essence, do they get right. So then, if Allah is the God of the Bible, is it possible to say that Joseph Smith was talking to the right guy? Just heard it wrong? Is the angel Moroni going to greet us along with Michael? We continue. 30. Both of them have degrees of rewards and punishment. Explicit degrees of rewards and punishment in both in heaven and hell. We finally come to something that I find fascinating, a section that I will simply call apologetic. But you can call it jihad. 31. Don't go too far with this. But both of them have jihad. And both of them had a September 11. In Islam, of course, September 11, 2001. In Mormonism, September 11, 1857, when the Mormon militia massacred 140 men, women, and children under the authority of Brigham Young, they left 17 very young children alive and adopted them into Mormon families. And you can look it up because it was called the Mountain Meadow Massacre. Mormonism had its own jihad. And they did so in the name of Mormonism. September the 11th, 1857. Feel free. It's a great study. Again, please don't draw too 
strong of it and say, oh, yo, yo, some have been loud and knew that date. Uh, probably not. But anybody who says that, you know, it's been hijacked, in, in both cases, their true nature is part of their origin. Surah 4, verse 101, know that the infidels are open enemies unto you. 551, take no friends from among the Jews and the Christians. You bring their judgment and condemnation upon you. Look, it's just the nature. It's an us versus them. 32, their apologists, by and large, use ad hominem attack. Many of us in this room, many of us in this room, you have suffered because when you are um, uh, attacked in the press and in the media and in the public, it is they attack you, your person, your history, your background, your whatever. And I understand that. Trust me, I understand that. And what they do is when they cannot answer your arguments, they will attack you. I don't understand why anybody starts arguing with Muslims and then they get surprised when it becomes heated. And I'm neither, I'm not a Persian and I'm not Arab. I'm Anatolian. I'm Turkish, which means I have to apologize to half of you. Right? Because the, most of you have been abused by the Ottoman Empire. But even my people, we will argue over laundry. You come and look at something in the bazaar, in the souk, and you pick it up and you walk away, we will follow you. No, 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 my friend, my friend, my friend, come, come, come. You know, for you, for you, 30 lira. Don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. Yeah? And if you say anything, you know, I've uh, 20. What do we do? We start yelling. You are stealing food out of the mouth of my children. This is an insult to my people. <laughs> if we argue this way about these small idiocies, why would it surprise you that arguing is, is, seems to be part and parcel of it? The problem is they become very personal very quickly. You can never defend men and movements. You can never take the bait, retaliate. You just stand there, let them say whatever they want about you. I mean, they talk about Jerry Falwell all the time, but Jerry Falwell didn't die for my sins. Jesus did. And so what I, the point that I make is, is that when they start coming, whatever they say about me, I don't care. It's not going to mess me up. Quickly, 33. Both of them have eschatological warfare. Both of them believe that what they're doing is bringing in their kingdoms. It ties to 34. Both of them have Jesus returning. The wrong time, the wrong place, for the wrong reason. The beauty is, all of us who have ever been to the Holy Land, what's the first thing that the Ottomans did when we took over? Yeah, we sealed up the Eastern Gate. Why? Why? If, if Isa is supposed to return and kill all the swine and then go to a minaret in Damascus, why? Why did we seal up the Eastern Gate? And, and by the way, if it's actually true, really? Really? That when the trumpet sounds and the sky splits and water begins to flow fresh, from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea, that our Lord is going to walk from the Mount of Olives where his foot hits. He's going to walk down past the Garden of Gethsemane on his left, past the Valley of Gehenna on the left. He's going to walk up to the Eastern Gate and he can't get in because it's locked. Really? Come on. But they have him coming to the wrong place at the wrong time for the wrong reason. And finally, both of them, both of them have bastardized genealogies I say this because it brings me to my final issue it is not enough to say hey I am a follower to a Muslim they got Abraham as a Muslim in the Quran they got Jesus as a Muslim in the Quran their genealogies are so profoundly intractably tied that everybody that they borrow from is explicitly stated as a practicing Muslim in the Quran 
And Mormons, well, Titus 3, 9, notwithstanding, you know, avoid foolish fighting and genealogies. Mormons baptize for the dead. Why? Because everybody's a Mormon somewhere down the line. And we're helping you out, even the dead. In other words, in their insider movement, if you say, I'm a Muslim, their answer is, everyone was. And if they say, well, Allah, Jehovah, same God. Allah, Adonai, same God. Why would they say that? Because they believe when you're talking about God, there's only one God. Name is Allah. So obviously you're talking about Allah. They are not saying that the nature and name matter. They're simply making a philosophical point based on their theology. I do not believe that the insider movement has traction theologically, historically, and ultimately, I believe that the same mistakes made by Muhammad were later made by Joseph Smith because it's the same demon. Satan has a limited toolbox. He's only got so many things he can play with. It worked once. He's going to try to make it work again. So why then would we ever want to unite or to surreptitiously state that we are tied to a cracked mirror that is a mirror of a false religion to begin with?